Here we go. All right, turn with me to Matthew 10. We are going to start a new passage today in verse 16. But as we begin this passage, let me explain to you a change. And that is that I'm trying out the new Legacy Standard Bible, which is a revision to the New American Standard 95 edition. Uh, I don't know yet if I will permanently switch, but I want to try it out for a while and see how it goes. Let me explain a little bit about the LSB. Uh, the Lockman Foundation, which holds the copyright to the New American Standard, gave the professors at the Master's Seminary permission to revise the 95 edition to make it more consistent with the translation of certain words and to more accurately reflect the tenses and moods and syntax of the original languages that underlie the English text. And so weights and measurements, for example, are, are found or they're translated as found in the original writings and then there's uh, conversions for the American and metric systems in the marginal notes. Uh, perhaps the most significant difference is in the Old Testament, which as you know was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And uh, so there the personal name of God, which appears like 8,400 times, uh, is translated Yahweh. Uh, uh, in, it, they use that to translate the Tetragrammaton, uh, which is typically in your English Bibles translated as Lord in little capital letters. Uh, in the New Testament, the, the term Lord is maintained uh, since that is the proper translation of the Greek word kurios. Uh, some people have a hard time with the use of the name Yahweh, particularly when reading some of the Psalms in which that name is repeatedly used uh, because their ear is used to hearing Lord for their entire life and the name Yahweh doesn't sound right to them. But be assured that's precisely what the Hebrew text says. Uh, so as I read the text, if you also use a New American Standard, which most of the people at Lakeside do because we've used it for so long here, uh, you, you will find that the wording is about 98 to 99% the same. Uh, there will be occasional wording changes. Uh, but So please don't think that because I've done this, that means that you need to go out and replace your New American Standard with an LSB simply because I'm using one. Uh, but if you want to investigate the LSB, you can purchase a copy at 316publishing.com uh, or uh, it's easy. You have an electronic version in your phone. It's already on uh, the Uversion Bible software, on Olive Tree Bible software, Logos Bible software, Accordance Bible software. Uh, but, you know, so, and let, let me just add that since the majority of people in our church use the New American Standard because that's what Steve uses, whenever I fill in for him in the pulpit, I will continue to use the New American Standard there because that's what most of the congregation is more familiar with. Uh, also, uh, another reason is because the easy worship software package that we use to produce the slides of songs and verses uh, that are projected on the screens does not yet have the LSB in it. Uh, so that's another reason why, you, why I will use the New American Standard there. So with that introduction, let's read the passage and begin, beginning at verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. 
and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. And brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who is endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now as a part of their training, before Jesus sent out the twelve, he wanted them to know some of the difficulties they would face. And all of this pointed toward that final day when they would be sent out on their own after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. So he instructs them about their first missionary venture. But as he does, his instruction builds to a wider and wider scope of application. He's telling them not only what to expect on this first short-term mission trip to the Jews, but what will come in the future as they, and ultimately their spiritual descendants, go out into a sin-darkened, Christ-rejecting, hostile world. So at this point, the instruction Jesus gives to the Twelve has some very specific references to them and what they will face. But beyond that, it telescopes past this first missionary endeavor to give them principles that will be related to their full mission after his ascension. And it goes beyond that to touch all of us who are who represent Christ in the church age and even into the period of the Great Tribulation. If you look at verse 23, you will notice that it ends with the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, that is an eschatological term used by Matthew to refer to the return of Christ. And so what he teaches here has immediate importance for the twelve as they go out, such as the statement back in verse 6, to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's a very dispensational statement related to a very specific time in which they lived. But it begins from there and telescopes out so that it touches the time in which they will be fully sent, as well as touching all of those who will ever be sent by Christ, even those who will be sent against the terrible opposition of the great, in, the tra in the Great Tribulation prior to the return of Christ. And so what we see here is a sweep of all the history of God's people from the first time Jesus came to the second time he will come. He sends the twelve on, a mission, on this first mission. But with his marvelous, omniscient, prophetic eye, he sees the twelve again in their full mission without him being physically present. And then he sees all the way to those who represent him in every age, all the way to those who will be in the great Holocaust known as the Great Tribulation with the terrible opposition they will face. Now remember that the first 15 verses of this chapter gave us insight into who the 12 were. Verses 1 to 4 instruct us about who they were and the fact that Jesus called them. Verses 5 to 15 gave us his instructions to them. And now verses 16 to 23 describe how the world will react to them and how they are to react back to the world. And finally, in verses 24 to 42, we will see the cost of discipleship. 
And so we see who they are and what their task is, then how the world will react, and finally, what the price is that must be paid for representing Christ. Now, it's important that you understand this telescopic method of teaching that Jesus is using here. It's almost impossible to sensibly interpret verses 5 to 42 otherwise. Uh, after all, in verse 8, Jesus told them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. And there's no indication at all that they actually did raise the dead during their first brief mission. Uh, but after the ascension, after, after their full sending out, uh, when the Holy Spirit came, we find that Peter raised Dorcas from the dead. And Paul raised Eutychus from the dead after he fell asleep in church and fell out the window. Uh, it also says in verse 17 that they would be delivered over to the councils and scourged in the synagogues. Uh, that di also did not happen on their first missionary trip. Uh, there's no persecution of them at all until after the resurrection of Christ. And then, and we see those exact things start happening to them in Acts 5. So you see there are some specific instructions for that specific time, such as go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and some instructions that fit for later, such as raise the dead and you'll be persecuted in the synagogues. And then there are some general instructions that sweep on through the rest of church history for us and some that are most uniquely fulfilled by those who live in the Great Tribulation. The reason you need to understand this is because many people have misunderstood this chapter, wondering why the disciples didn't do all those things that were done. Uh, and wondering how and where these things all apply. But biblically speaking, this type of telescopic prophetic teaching is very common pattern in Scripture. Many times in the Old Testament, the prophet will pro give a prophecy that has both an immediate application or soon-to-be application, as well as a future significance and fulfillment. For example, in Micah 5.2, it says, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from everlasting from the ancient days. And then verse 4 says, and he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh, his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. So verse 2 says, that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And verse 4 says, he will reign as king over the earth. So Micah is saying, soon a baby's going to be born, and then he will reign. And yet he says nothing about the thousands of years in between his birth and his kingdom. Uh, very commonly in prophetic literature, predictions have an immediate fulfillment and a future fulfillment. Uh, and that is what Jesus is doing in this instruction here in Matthew 10. He's predicting the role and place of the apostles and has in mind the ultimate sense that of that uh, this will sweep clear through the history of time all the way to the time of the tribulation. Now, if you don't understand that, you're not going to understand this chapter. And that's why I'm telling you this. If you do, you will. Otherwise, you can't explain why they didn't raise the dead or why they weren't thrown in synagogues and beaten during their first mission. But if you understand that it's an unfolding all the way into the future, you'll have the right understanding. Now, in verses 16 to 23, Jesus first gives us an analogy of believers and their opponents, and then illustrations of the attitude that we are to have 
as we face those opponents. That's verse 16. Then in verses 17 and 18, he mentions the two primary areas from which the attacks against believers will come. And then in verses 19 and 20, he promises God's provision for dealing with those attacks. And finally, in verses 21 to 23, he mentions the two primary areas of indirect attack and tells his followers how to respond when persecution comes. So let's begin with verse 16, the beginning of verse 16 with the analogy. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Uh, now that's a very interesting statement. He begins by saying, Behold. That's his way of saying, Hey guys, pay attention to what I'm about to say. And then he says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And that phrase is even more vivid in Luke 10.3, where it says, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Uh, sheep are some of the most helpless animals on the planet. But among them, the weakest, most helpless are the lambs. And that's what he says that the disciples, and by extension, we are like. And notice that the word he uses here, he says we are, the lambs are in the midst. He doesn't say he's sending you into the midst. We're already in the midst, okay? The godless world around us is already like a pack of wolves surrounding us seeking to destroy us. Uh, we're already among them. We're in the middle with no escape route. Uh, so Jesus' point is that there's serious danger uh, ahead. The, the comfort is that his statement assures us he's already aware of the danger and the difficulty, and this is all a part of his sovereign plan and purpose for them and us. Our situation is not unforeseen by God. Now let's talk about the nature of sheep for a couple of minutes. I will admit up front that I'm no expert on sheep, and I'm even less of an expert on wolves. Uh, but everything I've read about sheep, they are undoubtedly one of the most helpless and stupid of all domesticated animals. Uh, I read that sheep are so easily scared and panicked that if a rabbit jumps out from behind a scrub bush, uh, it's enough to stampede the whole flock. Uh, they're very edgy animals. Their only defense against a predator is to run. And sadly, they aren't built for speed. Uh, they have big bodies and four toothpicks for legs. Um, apart from the rams, they have no weapons at all. And normally, rams only use their horns to fight other rams for position and power within the flock. Uh, otherwise, they too are helpless against predators such as wolves or cougars. Uh, in his book, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm, uh, Philip Keller writes about dealing with sheep from his long experience as a shepherd up in Canada. And he points out that sheep are so indiscriminate in their choice of vegetation to eat that the shepherd has to walk ahead of the flock and make sure there are no poisonous weeds. Otherwise, they'll eat them. Uh, sheep are highly vulnerable to weather conditions and infections and disease from parasites, so they have to be regularly checked for danger symptoms and cuts and abrasions and the like. Uh, there's a certain kind of fly that buzzes around their eyes and ears, irritating the sheep so much that they've been known to beat their heads against a rock or tree until they're dead. Um, very often these flies land in their eyes and plant their uh, eggs there and eventually the sheep go blind. 
Uh, sometimes a flock of sheep will panic and stampede for some real or imagined danger. And in the stampede, the pregnant ewes will miscarry from the running and often they're so exhausted they'll die. Uh, but beyond all these, the most severe enemy of the sheep is the predator, here indicated as a wolf, a uh, savage wild carnivore. In Israel during that time, the Arabian wolf, also known as the desert wolf, uh, was the most feared predator for the sheep. And everyone in the culture knew how hard it was for shepherds to protect their flocks from these vicious predators. These wolves were among the cleverest and most skillful of all predators in avoiding detection as they ravaged the shepherd's flocks. Uh, for example, here's what Keller writes about this. And this is a quote from him. He says, Use heavy with lamb when chased by such predators, will slip the unborn lambs and lose them in abortions. A shepherd's loss from such forays can be appalling. One morning at dawn, I found nine of my choicest ewes, all soon to lamb, lying dead in the field. All On several occasions, these cunning creatures came in among my, flock at, uh, among my sheep at night, making terrible havoc in the flock. Some ewes were killed outright, their blood drained and livers eaten. Others were torn open and badly damaged. Some had huge patches of wool torn from their fleeces. In their frightened stampede, some had stumbled or broken bones or rushed over rough ground, injuring legs and bodies. Yet despite the damage, despite the dead sheep, despite the in injuries of fear instilled in the flock, I never once actually saw a predator on my range. So cunning and skillful were their raids, they defied description." End quote. Now, if you lived in the Lord's time, you would have understood then the severity of the task of the shepherd who had to defend his sheep against all of these things. And most of the time, he didn't even own the sheep. The shepherd worked for the sheep owner. Uh, in fact, if you came back, if you were a shepherd and you came back and reported that a sheep had been killed, you had to provide a piece of the flesh of that sheep to prove that a wild animal had killed that sheep rather than having been stolen by a thief or sold by a dishonest shepherd. So the idea of the sheep and the wolf was very common in the minds of these men. And Jesus says to them, look, I'm going to send you out and to give you a perspective of how it's going to be, it'll be like sheep in the midst of wolves. Not sheep in fear of wolves that are coming, but sheep among wolves that have already encircled the flock. Now, that's not exactly the most thrilling call to the ministry that I've ever heard. Um, sending them out as sheep is a wonderful thought. Christ is a good shepherd. He knows his sheep. He loves his sheep. He cares for his sheep. They know his voice. All these wonderful things that we learn in John 10. But the idea of being in them in the middle of vicious, destructive, deadly wolves is the Lord's way of making the most graphic illustration of the helplessness and the fearlessness of confronting a Christ-rejecting, God-hating world with a message of the kingdom. And sometimes the wolves are among us, aren't they? Uh, in Acts 20, 29, Paul says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. In Romans 8, 38, Paul said, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Some people just view us as sheep to be slaughtered. 
Sometimes the wolves are on the outside and sometimes the wolves are on the inside masquerading in sheep. Remember back when we looked at Matthew 7.15 where it speaks of false teachers being wolves in sheep's clothing? They disguise themselves as true shepherds, but they're just wolves in shepherds' clothing. So Jesus says the wolves are out there and, you, and you're defenseless in and of yourselves. But that's how it's going to be. You'll be victims in a sense. Now, frankly, that would be enough to panic anyone. They were helpless, defenseless apostles going out among ravenous, vicious, wicked, God-hating men. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to lose. It just means they didn't have any resources in themselves. That's why it's so wonderful when we read John 10, it tells us that the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He will defend us. You know, the honesty of Jesus in this passage is so refreshing to me. I don't think Jesus would be at home in contemporary American Christianity. Because, frankly, because there's just not enough honesty on the part of most of the shepherds. Uh, many, if not most of them, are so concerned about getting people saved that they water down the gospel to make it palatable. Uh, so they don't talk about repentance. They don't talk about confession of sin. They don't talk about humbling ourselves and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And they never talk about the lordship of Christ. Uh, they don't talk about obedience and a narrow way and the cost and the price. And so then when someone becomes a believer, they don't talk about going out as sheep among wolves. Uh, instead, they say, let's go share. Uh, we aren't as honest as he is. We don't recruit people for evangelism and say, look, there are ravenous wild wolves out there who are looking to tear you to shreds. Are there any of you sheep who'd like to volunteer? <laughs> you know, Jesus' message isn't the world's way to win adherence. Uh, the world talks about ease and comfort and riches and advancement and ambition. Jesus offered hardship and death. Listen, if you're dishonest in your presentation of the gospel, or dishonest in your presentation of what it means to serve Christ, people are going to come running to you on false pretense and not on the truth. Uh, so what have you gained? You've just given them a gospel that's so watered down that anyone will believe it. That's why I think it's clear that we have so many on the broad road to destruction and so few on the narrow road to eternal life. Uh, but many on the Broad Road think they're saved because the gospel that they've been given is so watered down, it really isn't the true gospel at all. Uh, why do you think that so many teens who grow up in evangelical churches, they go off to college, and within a year they have walked away from the faith, thereby giving evidence they really weren't true believers in the first place? Because the gospel that they heard in their Sunday school classes and youth ministries was a watered-down false gospel of easy believism. But Jesus calls people into his ministry and initiates them by saying, you're going to go out and get ripped to pieces. It isn't easy. They're going to cut you up out there. They don't agree with you. They don't believe your message. They don't want to hear your message. Uh, after the siege of Rome in 1849, Giuseppe Garibaldi told his soldiers, men, all our efforts against superior forces have been unavailing. I have nothing to offer you but hunger and thirst, hardship and death. 
but I call on all who love their country to join with me. And they came by the hundreds. After the Allies were forced to retreat from Dunkirk in 1940, Churchill told the, Brit the British, all I can offer you is blood, sweat, and tears. And here Jesus says, all I have to offer you in this life is blood, sweat, tears, hunger, thirst, and death. That's the way it is. And he never sends anyone out without fully telling them the truth. You say, well, I'm not suffering a lot of persecution. Maybe that's because you're not really definitive about the requirements of your faith. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It may be that God is gracious and there's a time of respite for you, but somewhere in the world, at all times, the church is being devoured by wolves. And it's coming here. If we're going to be faithful to the word in this culture, we're going to suffer for it. Uh, it will be a time of great purification for the church. Uh, we already see it in many ministries. As the LGBTQ folks have forced their views on the society, we have seen several well-known religious figures and ministries suddenly change their position on those matters, uh, claiming that God's word isn't exactly clear that such a lifestyle is sin, that a person can practice homosexuality and be a Christian. They recognize that if their message about homosexual sin doesn't align with the culture, they're going to be ostracized and lose influence and power so, and money. And so rather than be faithful to the Lord, their true colors come through and they're revealed to be the wolves in sheep's clothing that they actually are. Persecution of faithful believers is already occurring in our nation. It's only going to get worse. Just a couple of years ago, the Atlanta, Georgia fire chief was fired for writing a book on biblical sexual ethics. They used in Bible studies with men at his church. And a lesbian firefighter happened to get her hands on a copy and filed a complaint against him, and the mayor fired him, even though his conduct occurred entirely off-duty and was protected religious speech. Uh, there was absolutely no testimony or complaint that he had actually discriminated against any homosexual in the department. In fact, the firefighter admitted that he had not done anything wrong. Her complaint was simply that his Christian beliefs were opposed to homosexuality and thus he might potentially discriminate at some point in the future. He was fired. He sued the city. He received a large settlement, but he lost his job and no other fire department would hire him. And so his career was over. Uh, he's now the administrative pastor at his church in the Atlanta area. Uh, Similar cases are arising all the time, and true Christians better get ready. It won't be long before employers will require all employees, including believers, to participate or to agree to participate in LGBTQ Pride Month activities or be fired. And many Christians will lose their jobs, but others who profess to be Christians will bend the knee to the idol of the homosexual and transgender agenda just to save their jobs, and in the process, they will reveal their true colors. The same thing's going to happen to churches and probably within my lifetime. I fully expect to see the day that churches and Christian schools and colleges that refuse to employ LGBTQ individuals or admit LGBTQ students to their schools will face the removal of their tax-exempt status by the IRS. 
Um, the biblical position on such matters will be deemed hate speech. It will be considered acceptable to ostracize and persecute such churches and schools. You say, but we've got the Supreme Court on our side. Don't fool yourself. That can change in the blink of an eye. So it may come to that, but that's how it is out there in the world. If we're definitive with our faith, there's always a price to pay. You cannot confront a God-hating world without a reaction. One reason why the evangelical church in America has been able to avoid persecution for so long is that, it has, that we have hidden much of our Christianity inside the walls of our churches so that they don't know what we actually believe. If we're more open and forthright about what we believe God's word teaches, the world would be persecuting us more. So the analogy Jesus uses is that, the, that of sheep surrounded by wolves. And next he explains the attitude we're to have in that situation. Look at the last half of verse 10. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. The first part of that statement seems odd to us, doesn't it? Because we think of snakes as frightening reptiles. Some of them are deadly, such as rattlesnakes and cobras and mambas and coral snakes and boa constrictors and the like. Uh, and because we associate serpents with the Satan and the fall of man into sin, they're not exactly among the creatures that people typically like. Um, I know there are some people who keep snakes as pets, but they're a very small, stupid minority. <laughs> no, I'm teasing about this word stupid there. They're a minority. Most people don't even want to touch a snake, uh, even if it's a gentle, non-poisonous corn snake. Uh, but in the ancient world, as portrayed by in Egyptian hieroglyphics and other ancient lore, snakes were thought of as shrewd, smart, cunning, clever, and cautious. Uh, so Jesus says that in that sense, that Christians are to emulate them. Servants of the Lord are to be shrewd and clever in dealing with the unbelieving world around them. The basic idea is that of saying the right thing at the right time and place, having a sense of propriety and appropriateness, and of trying to determine the best means to achieve the higher goal. It's neither wise nor loving to be needlessly accusatory or inflammatory. Uh, when the Pharisees attempted to trap Jesus into either defending or condemning the Roman government, by asking him about paying taxes to Caesar. He didn't use that as an opportunity to vilify Caesar or the government, regardless of how vile and debauched and ungodly they were. Uh, nor did he condone their wickedness. He simply said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. It's neither brave nor wise and neither spiritual nor loving to needlessly incite anger or court trouble. Uh, that's why I and the rest of the elders do not support the type of so-called evangelism which espouses standing on the street corner uh, as the gay, at the gay pride parade, shouting at the people in the parade about them being an abomination to God and on their way to hell unless they repent. Uh, all of that is true, but that is not wise. Uh, nor does it cause any of them to desire to listen to your message. Why? because it comes across as hateful and nasty. Um, it brings reproach to Christ and all believers, so it just hardens them in their sin. If you don't believe me, just listen, just read or listen to the testimonies of Rosaria Butterfield or Beckett 
Cook, two followers of Christ who used to be homosexuals. Uh, they can tell you about how they and every other homosexual were turned off by Christians who behave that way. We are to be wise and shrewd in our approach among uh, toward unbelievers. In addition, Jesus says that we are to be innocent as doves. Uh, the dove represents purity, gentleness, and innocence. Being true to God's word and uncompromising and proclaiming the gospel does not require and should never include being abrasive, coarse, inconsiderate, belligerent, blatant, or blunt. Uh, wisdom and innocence, cunning and gentleness are handmaids of discretion. No apostle was more uncompromising about the gospel than Paul. And yet, what did he say in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 22? He said, for though I'm free from all, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who were without law as without law though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. But understand, innocence, <coughs> innocence involves more than simply avoiding negative attitudes and approaches. and It also involves the positive attitudes of purity. Godly wisdom has no part in anything that is impure, deceitful, or defiling. It's always the ally of truth and righteousness. Nothing untruthful or unethical can enhance the gospel or make its witness more effective. Paul told the Thessalonians that his preaching and teaching of the gospel did not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. 1 Thessalonians 2.3 so then, integrity and honesty are the outward evidences of truthfulness. And if you don't have truthfulness, it won't matter how orthodox and accurate your gospel presentation may be, it will be distorted and weakened. We are to be like Jesus. We are to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us. And we are to follow his example so that when we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to plead. So we're to have an attitude of righteousness, pure, innocent, shrewdness, and cleverness as we go into the midst of wolves in a very dark world. But we need to be aware of the persecution that we'll face. And that's what Jesus explains next. He talks about two areas in which this persecution is going to come. So look at verses 17 and 18. But beware of men... For they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Now God identifies the wolves that he spoke about in verse 16. They're men. Verse 17 tells us beware of men. Mankind are the wolves. Yes, Ephesians 6.12 says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. But while our ultimate enemy is not the people around us, they are the agents of those supernatural demonic forces. Throughout the centuries, it has been men who slaughtered the saints. It has been men who crucified 
burned at the stake and stoned the saints of God. It's been men who threw them into jail when they preached, uh, men who snuffed their lives out and who still do to this day in places like China, North Korea, Iran, Nigeria, Syria, Afghanistan, Vietnam. It is men who are Satan's agents who carry out his attacks on believers. If you remember back in chapter 5, Matthew, verses 10 and 11, it says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So wolves are the people who operate as Satan's agents. And that's why he says in verse 17, Beware of men. Keep your eye out for them. They're not your friends in one sense. Now, I don't want you to forget that we have to reach people and we have to love people as God loves them. And as Galatians 6.10 instructs us that while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, of the faith. That means don't use castigating language with your friends, neighbors, and family about their sin, telling them what an abomination they are and a foul odor, odor to the nostrils of a holy God unless they repent. That's unnecessary. And at the same time, we don't want to excuse their sin if it, as if it really isn't all that bad. Uh, so we want to keep a balance in our relationship with them, but realize the enemy is going to attack you through human agencies. So don't be surprised when you're criticized. Uh, don't be surprised when you're fired for articulating your faith. Don't be surprised when people don't invite you to the neighborhood parties or other activities. Don't be surprised because human agents represent the kingdom of darkness. John MacArthur has some wise words on this issue. He writes this, quote, To be innocent is not to be naive. When well-meaning believers insist on putting the best face on every evil, they're not demonstrating love, but foolishness and self-deception. Not to beat an unbeliever over the head with the vileness of his sin is one thing. To minimize his sin and his lostness apart from Christ is quite another. To love our enemies and not return evil for evil is one thing. To deny they are enemies is quite another." End quote. You say, well, is their opposition to us very widespread? Well, look at verse 22. You'll be hated by all because of my name. So it isn't isolated. It's standard fare. Now, understand the word all there is not the all of every human being who ever lived on the face of the earth. Everyone in the whole world doesn't hate me because they don't all know me. Maybe if they all knew me, it'd be a different story. But it's not an all in that sense any more than when it says, for example, in Jeremiah 3.6 that Israel played the harlot with false gods on every high hill and under every green tree. It's literary license. It doesn't mean they actually uh, were having adulterous acts and idols under every single tree in Israel, but rather it's a general statement saying that everywhere throughout the nation, Israel was engaged in false worship. When David said in Psalm 6, 6, Every night I make my bed swim, I flood my couch with my tears. We don't read that and think that he actually cried so much his bed was flooded and he had to swim for the edge to get out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's literary license. In John 12, 19, when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it says the Pharisees said to one another, the world has gone after him. 
Obviously, everyone in the world didn't follow after Jesus. In Matthew 21, 26, the Pharisees were caught in a dilemma as to how to answer Jesus about whether John the Baptist was from God or men. And so they said to one another, if we say from men, we fear the crowd, for they all regard John as a prophet. Well, obviously, not everyone regarded John as a prophet, but they used the term all as a way of saying the majority of people regard him as a prophet. It's a general statement. It means all kinds of people, all classes, all sexes, all races, all nationalities, all cultures, and so forth. And so what Jesus is saying in verse 17 is, look, I'm not saying that it's just the Jewish people who are going to be antagonizing. I'm talking about all kinds of people through all the ages of history are going to react negatively to the gospel when it's lived out and presented. Now, we have benefited from living in a nation where genuine persecution has been very limited, but as I said, it's coming. Our nation has had a strong Christian influence for many years, but uh, so we haven't had much deliberate religious persecution. But I truly believe that part of the reason that we don't experience more of this kind of overt persecution is America, because as I said before, we've altered our message to accommodate people so that we don't confront them. The, the gospel begins with God's holiness and the individual's unrighteousness. Unless the person understands that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, they can't be saved. And when you tell them that, most of them are going to get mad at you. And when you tell them apart from repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone, they have no hope of eternal life in heaven. They will ridicule you, curse you call you a bigot, threaten you, perhaps spit on you, or at the very least walk away from you thinking that you are one crazy idiot. And in some places they may kill you. So what Jesus warned the disciples, and by extension us, is that when you go out and preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you're confronting people who are the agents of Satan with their sinfulness, and they're going to react. For example, Turn over to 1 Corinthians 4, and this will give you the perspective of Paul. We all know Paul was an apostle, and he was no less an apostle than Peter or John and James or any of the others. But in verse 9, he says this, 1 Corinthians 4, 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. Verse 10, fools for Christ's sake. Verse 11, to this present hour we hunger and thirst and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless. The end of verse 13, we have become as the scum of the world, the grime of all things even until now. How's that for a recruitment speech? Uh, yeah. All of you who would like to be condemned to death, spectacles, thought of as fools, hungry, thirsty, dressed in rags, homeless, filthy, scummy, thirsty, Grimy, line up to the right. Welcome to the ministry. Welcome to representing Jesus Christ. That term spectacles is very interesting there. When a Roman general won a battle over another nation or another city, he was given the privilege of parading his army through the city. And this was called the triumph. And uh, he would parade his army and they would have all the spoils of the wealth, the gold and valuable things they'd taken from the defeated foe. And at the end of the line would come a small group of captives tied together on their way to die in the arena. And that's the term that's used here for spectacle. Dr. James Moffat, a Scottish theologian of the late 19th and 
20th centuries translates this verse this way. God means us apostles to come in at the very end like doomed gladiators in the arena. The, in, the NIV translators borrowed from Moffat. And so the NIV reads this way. God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. The, the term roughly treated in verse 11 is a, there back in our text, is a uh, word that means to beat or strike someone with your fist. It's not just shoving you around a bit and calling you names. It's a very brutal beating. And then it says we are scum. I guess I'm still in the other. And, and that word means the crud you scrub off a dirty dish. It's also used of scummy water after someone took a bath, which in the Middle Eastern culture at that time was not a daily occurrence. So the water was very dirty and scummy. And the word dregs is the synonym for the same thing. All the filth and garbage that is scraped off of something or the dirt at the bottom of the bathtub after someone takes a bath. That's us. How's that a call to the ministry? Paul says that's a good definition of an apostle. What's an apostle? He's a spectacle condemned to death, a fool who's knocked around and beaten with people's fists, who's considered to be nothing more than filthy scum. Well, I was about to take you back to our text in Matthew, but the time has run out on us. And so we're going to have to stop. Any comments or questions before we go? Yes? I just want to say thank you for church. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or if your if your tone is Nasty, rude, and condemning. Uh, it's one thing to tell someone, you know, to not compromise that they are sin. And, uh, you know, I've always liked uh, Ray Comfort's process of walking them through the Ten Commandments. Rather than, rather than targeting the homosexual on their sin, target these other sins. They're guilty of them just like everybody else. Target the Ten Commandment issues, and they will be just as convicted. Anything else? Yes, ma'am.